Timothy 2, 8-15. Continuing our series in 1 Timothy, on page 1194, if, it's, if you're using the church Bibles. I wonder how you felt when uh, Carrie read that passage just now. Uh, some people, you just said, oh yeah, you know this. Other people, you'd be scratching your hand a bit, or head rather. And other people are going, what? Didn't know that was in the Bible. Today we're coming to a passage that is difficult, to say the least. Uh, it's difficult in at least two different ways. Uh, first of all, there are one or two verses here which we find, or at least I find, difficult to work out what they mean. Uh, I'll show you when we come to them, and I'll tell you what the options are in interpreting them. But the main points of the passage aren't difficult in that sense. As far as I can see, they're quite clear. The difficulty we have is in accepting them and applying them. Because they fly in the face of our culture, or at least the progressive elements of our culture that most of us, myself included, tend to identify with. However, as Christians, we are ruled not by culture, but by the Word of God. And the Word of God cuts across culture. It cuts across every culture in some way or other. It speaks in ways that corrects and challenges every culture because no culture is perfect. We know that. And it's quite okay when God's Word challenges and speaks to other cultures, but it can be quite painful when the Word of God challenges and speaks to our culture. But we need to be people who are humble and contrite and tremble at God's Word. Before we look at it, I think it would be helpful to remember together, first of all, what, or rather who, we are dealing with. What we have before us here is not just the words of the Apostle Paul. We can't just rationalise it and say, oh look, that's, that was Paul's opinion, I have my own opinion. Because Paul is the human author, but the ultimate author is God the Holy Spirit. And so it is the word of God which comes with God's authority. And this God is the God who made us. He knows how he made us. He knows what his purposes are for us. And not only did he make us, but he also loves us. And we see his love for us in many ways, but primarily we see it at the cross. We see how Jesus died to pay the ultimate price so that we can be forgiven. He died to, to take our sins and our punishment so that we can... Uh, we, we can, we can be saved. And if God loves us in that way, then we know that he does care for us. And we can trust that what he tells us and what he asks of us is good and not bad. And even if it contradicts what we would naturally like to think or naturally like to have, what he commands of us is actually the best for us. Now our passage, as you know, having just read it, deals with gender in church. Before we get to that passage, though, I'd like us to think together a little bit about what the Bible says as a whole about gender, before going into the specifics, because I think it's important that we see how this part fits in the whole of biblical teaching. We'll come back to the whole again at the end, rather than just seeing it as an isolated thing. Right? So first of all, I'd like us to note that in the Bible there is a fundamental equality between men and women. There's a fundamental equality. Both have been created by God in his image. To rule the world under him. Both are sinners and in desperate need of salvation. Both women and men equally are saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus who died for us. Both look forward to the new creation. Women and men are equally precious to God and heirs of salvation. In ancient society, slaves were not heirs, only children were heirs. And of the children, the daughters were not heirs, only sons. That's why Paul, in Galatians chapter 5, speaks about our equality in salvation, when he says, You are all sons. He's talking about male and female. He says, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. 
For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's a fundamental equality in creation, in salvation. However, secondly, the fact that we are equal doesn't make us the same. Man is different from a woman. A father is different from a mother. A husband is different from a wife. These differences, as well as the fundamental equality, are good. They are created by God. God created us, male and female, in his image. He made us different. But who we are as humans, our identity, our worth, comes from not the roles that we have, but from being made in the image of God. So, if there's a difference in roles between men and women, that doesn't threaten our equality. It doesn't threaten the fact that, that our worth and our identity comes from being made in the image of God. And in fact, my third point is that within the fundamental equality of being, of worth, men and women have different roles to play. For example, in the family, we read the following address to husbands and wives. Uh, keep your finger in uh, 1 Timothy. Uh, turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, just a few pages before that. I'll tell you the page number when I find it. It's page 1177. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul is speaking to the families. He's addressing wives and husbands, and he says, Wives, verse 22, Submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and himself his saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything that their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he may sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives of their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound that I am saying refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see she respects her husband. You see, within that equality of being, there is a distinction in roles that we see here in Ephesians 5, isn't there? The role of husband and the role of wife is different. The wife is to submit to her husband, and the husband is to love his wife sacrificially, and give himself for her, as Christ gave himself for the church. Now, that is biblical headship opposed to the world's vision of, of uh, uh, version of headship that is full of oppression. Right? This passage leaves no room for, on the one hand, for a husband to take an authoritarian stand over his wife, or be violent or abusive towards her, to treat her as a slave. On the other hand, it leaves no room for the modern notion of husband and wife being completely interchangeable. See, the Bible stands against traditional culture, in which the authoritarian husband deals with his wife like dirt, just as it stands against the modern culture where the husband and wife are indistinguishable in their roles and relationship. And notice the reason that Paul gives here in Ephesians. is not submit to your husbands and love your wives because that's what everyone else is doing around us in our culture, so we mustn't, you know, offend them. Rather, the reason for doing it is pan of God and creation that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paul points back to the marriage of Adam and Eve in Genesis 2 and says, that's about Christ and the church. Marriage is instituted by God and creation to reflect the love and sacrifice of Christ on the one hand and the submission of the church to that loving authority on the other. So you've got an equality of being and a difference in role in the family. Now what we see from our passage today back to 1 Timothy, is that difference is also expressed in how the genders relate in the congregation of God's people. 
That's going to be particularly relevant when we come to verses 11 to 15 of the passage, where we look at appropriate and inappropriate ministry in the church. Uh, by the way, we, you would have got one of these uh, handouts which are on, on your way in. It would be helpful to have that in front of you. We are about to, we've finished item one. We're about to go to item number two. Uh, right, these things are particularly relevant on the items on the, on the right-hand side of the page. But, but uh, before we get there, and we don't have PowerPoints of all the details here, so you'll need to look at that if you want the, if you want the outline. Right. Before we get to those the passages on the right hand side, though, there are some. There, Paul wants to deal with some other issues. The Holy Spirit, through Paul, gives instructions for men and women in a couple of other areas. And Paul begins this section, therefore, with an instruction to men in verse eight. We're in one Timothy chapter two and verse eight. Now, one Timothy two verse eight is actually an overlap verse between the previous section and this one. You may remember last week how we talk, how we saw how um, we should pray for all people because there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And here in verse 8 we've got an application of that. Paul says he wants men in every place to pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Now, the word he uses there for men is not the word that you can use when you want to say men or women. Right? It's the word specifically for men. as the adult males of the human race. In chapter 2 verse 1 he's already told us that he wants us to pray for all people. And now he says he wants men to pray in this particular way. He doesn't say anything about how he wants women to pray. Now there are two reasons for that. Well, uh, two possible reasons for that. You can work out which one you think it is. Firstly, it could be that he wants both genders to pray, but men are mentioned here because Paul especially wants men to do it because they're not very good at it. Women generally tend to be better at praying than men, I think. Uh, And so he's reminding men to, to do it. And especially... He wants them to do it without anger or quarreling. Because when we face problems, some of us men have a tendency to fight instead of pray. We forget that we're dependent on God and we just try and solve our own problems our own way. Or just get frustrated and angry about it. We're tempted to raise our fists in rage instead of raising our hands in prayer. And Paul wants to make sure that we are praying. Now, if this is the case, that doesn't mean there's no application for women as well. I mean, women are also capable of anger and quarreling and, and instead of praying, and so the same thing applies. But Paul especially talked to men here because they're the ones more likely to fall in this area. The other option for why Paul is saying this to men could be because the men were the ones who were to lead the gathering times. And if this is right, it doesn't mean women can't pray at all publicly in church because 1 Corinthians 11 talks about the fact that they can. But on this view, he's saying, look, it's the men who primarily lead the congregation in the prayers. And so when he's talking about the public prayers, as he is here, then he's speaking, when he's talking about the public prayers to the church, then he's speaking to men. Either way, Paul wants men to lift up holy hands in prayer. Now, there's various postures for prayer in the Bible described, and this is one of them. Uh, it was a common posture. Uh, people in the Old Testament often raise their hands in prayer. And if you want to raise your hands in prayer when you come to church, then go right ahead. That's fine. You don't have to. The Bible describes all kinds of postures for prayer. You can feel free to kneel or to prostrate yourself on the ground if you like. Be careful no one steps on you. Right? The thing that Paul's saying here is not so much saying as what's the best posture for prayer, emphasis not so much on the pose, but the holiness of the person praying. He wants us to be raising holy hands. On the screen in a moment we'll see Isaiah chapter uh, 1 verse 15. In Isaiah 1 15, uh, God is speaking to his people Israel through Isaiah the prophet. And he says this, When you spread out your hands... I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. See, these are not holy hands. 
That's what he calls for repentance. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. And with repentance comes forgiveness. Come, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. As long as God's people were living in rebellion, as long as they were being oppressive and unjust, God would not hear their prayers. Their outstretched hands were not holy hands. They were bloodstained hands. And God's people, Paul says, are not to be like the people of Israel of old. We are to lift holy hands to God. Hands that have been washed clean by the blood of Jesus, and hands that do good, that seek justice and righteousness among God's people. But even that's not the main point of Paul's exhortation. It's meant to be given that the the leaders of God's people have holy hands. Uh, The main thing that he's saying here is that we should lift up holy hands without anger or quarreling. It is anger or quarreling that's the main point here. Avoiding that. See, we are not to be the kind of church that is full of bitterness and fighting and anger and then we settle down and we have our service pretending everything's okay and then we go outside and start fighting again in the car park. Alright? Now the answer to that isn't to stop praying. We have to pray. That's the command. I want you to pray. But the answer is to be reconciled. I want you to pray with holy hands without anger and quarreling. If the time ever comes that quarrels and fights break out between us, we will have to deal with them. I thank God that, you know, I don't think as far as I know there's no quarreling going on in Smack. That's fantastic. Thank God that you guys are not fighting. doesn't mean we have to always agree with everything, you know, with each other, but it does mean we love each other. And if we ever fight, one day we might, we'll need to make the effort to listen to each other, to understand each other to love each other, to be reconciled to each other, so we can pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. See, that may not be easy. And some men may think that's not a very masculine thing to do. But Paul tells us that's what we have to do. We must come to God in prayer, lifting holy hands, without anger or quarreling. And that's a special instruction to men. Then Paul turns to address the women. Now, if a typical male problem is anger and quarrelling, then a typical female problem has got to do with looks. Because, you see, society then, like society now, pushes females to look a particular way. Billions of dollars is spent every year to conform. And all kinds of self-image problems come up as a result because no one can really compete with the pictures of the models who are unhealthily skinny, being made up for hours and then photographed in controlled situations and then airbrushed or subjected to computer manipulation to enhance features and eliminate blemishes. Even the models themselves can't look like that in real life. So, women, how do you make yourselves attractive? Now, we have two points here. First of all, dress decently. Verse 9. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control. To adorn yourselves with respectable apparel. That is, the clothing you're wearing says something about yourself. Wear clothes that say respectable or decent. Don't wear clothes that make you look like a prostitute or, or someone who's going cheap, because you're not. That doesn't mean you always have to wear you know, old-fashioned clothes or be frumpy or whatever. Right? But you're a representative of Jesus and that should be reflected in how you dress. And so your public dressing should be, verse 10, with modesty and self-control. In other words, self-control there also means, means reasonableness, good judgment or moderation. Right? So what Paul is saying is, is your dressing should be modest and sensible, not revealing or, or sensual. Now, what that means, of course, will be different in different cultures, won't it? 
What is revealing and sensual in one culture will be modest and sensible in another culture. So, Paul, God, God, God doesn't give us a detailed dress code. He doesn't say, oh, you know, your skirt has to be how many inches long, or you have to cover your ankles, your knees, or your elbows, or your shoulders, your earlobes, or, or whatever. He gives us principles to apply. Dress modestly and sensibly. You work out what that means in 21st century KL. Right? But remember, you do not have to rely on sensuality to make you attractive. Instead, and that's the second point here, let your beauty come from your godliness. Verse 9 and 10 again. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. See, the thing that makes you beautiful is not your really expensive clothes, or your beautiful hairstyle, your shiny jewelry. The thing that makes you really attractive it's your godliness, your good works. It's not saying you, you can't wear any jewellery or makeup or you can't go to the hairdresser. Those, those things are not evil in themselves, but, but you shouldn't be relying on them to make you beautiful. That's not what you adorn yourselves with. If you're a woman who professes godliness or literally who acknowledges the fear of the Lord, the thing that should make you beautiful, the thing you should adorn yourself with, is who you are and the good that you do. And a godly woman is an attractive woman in a far deeper way than a woman who is dolled up. Now Paul is talking primarily to women here, but there are two secondary applications to men as well, so don't close your ears, men. First of all, men, train yourselves to appreciate godliness and good works in a woman, rather than physical beauty. If you're looking for a wife... Look first for a woman who is godly and who does good works. Who loves Jesus, fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. That's a good woman. And teach yourself to be attracted to that kind of behavior. And while Paul is addressing women because it's more a women's issue, there's also times when men are tempted to rely on physical attractiveness themselves. And, and if, it's that, if that's you, then... Learn with our sisters that good works is far more important. And ladies, well, Paul was speaking primarily here about what you wear at church, the congregational meeting. It seems right to apply the same principle to what you wear everywhere else as well. Dress respectably and modestly, and let your attractiveness primarily come from your behavior. Paul then continues to write about women in the congregation and he moves from how they are to adorn themselves to how they are to function in the gathering. And he wants to emphasize that in the gathering of God's people the women are there and they will function as learners but not teachers. Chapter 2 verse 11. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Now before we work out what this means let me tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that women are not allowed to speak at all in church. We know that. Because in 1 Corinthians 11, deals, it deals with how women are to pray and prophesy in church. Right, so when Paul uses the word quiet here, he can't be saying absolute silence. But what does he mean? Well, the word quiet there has got the same root as the word we saw for quiet um, back, in, back in verse 2. We are called upon to pray for kings and all who are in high positions that we may live, lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. See, a quiet life is a life that is tranquil, a life that is peaceful, a life that is free um, in society here from fighting and civil unrest. And Paul wants women in church to live quietly and peaceably, to learn quietly and peaceably. Well. Stirring up dissension and trouble. They are to do it, he says, with all submissiveness. Now, to submit to someone in a biblical sense is to willingly 
put yourself under their God-given authority. And so for a woman to learn quietly with all submissiveness in the congregation means that she is willingly and peacefully learning from a teacher in the congregation, coming under his authority in that setting rather than trying to usurp it. Like the good women in this congregation are doing right now, and indeed do every week. So for a woman to be quiet in this context means that she's not agitating for change, not trying to become the teacher and, and take his position, but, but submitting to her God-given role. That's how a woman learns quietly with all submissiveness. Right? There is a difference in the roles between men and women. Everyone's got a different role, and women in church are not meant to agitate to, to overturn them. Because you see, there are many ministry roles that are open to women in church. Uh, women must be encouraged to serve in these ministries. However, there are two roles that are given here that are not open to women in church and women are not to try to gain. And they're spelled out in verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she's to remain quiet. Once again, let me tell you what this doesn't mean before telling you what it does mean. It doesn't mean a woman is not allowed to teach anything to anyone at all. Right? Titus chapter 2 verse 3 and 4 says that older women are to train younger women. However, women, as we see here, are not permitted to teach God's word to men. And not permitted to exercise authority over them, to have a governing authority in the congregation. Now, it's not prohibiting other areas of ministry, just these two, teaching the Bible and exercising authority. But why? Well, Paul gives us a reason here, and again, it's not some kind of special situation in Ephesus where Timothy was. Like, you know, your women are poorly educated, or you've got disruptive women teaching false doctrine. It's not a cultural reason, you know. Women in your culture don't take leadership roles, so it would be culturally inappropriate, which isn't true anyway, because there were women priests in the pagan temple in Ephesus. Nor was it a pragmatic reason, you know, so that people won't be offended or anything like that. Because if he gave any of those reasons, then we could say, well, times have changed and this, this instruction doesn't apply anymore. But the reason Paul gives for these instructions is not a time-bound one, it's one that is rooted in creation. It is something that is universal, not specific to this, that, or any other particular situation. Because it comes from God's original plan for men and women all the way back in Genesis 2. Now, the reason he gives is the order of creation. Look at verses 12, and 12 again, and we'll read on to verse 13. He says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. See, this is about creation, not the fall. When Paul's talking about Adam being formed first and then Eve, he's referring to the time before there was sin in the world. When God's purposes were seen clearly, before things were mucked up by our rebellion. And there in Genesis 2, Paul's referring to to God's pattern, the, the paradigm for human life is, is laid out. And Paul, writing under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, explains to us that when God created Adam first and then only Eve, what he was doing is he was giving the leadership role to Adam. Now at this point we may or may not understand why this is a good reason to prohibit women from teaching or having authority over a man in church, but the Bible itself, inspired by the Holy Spirit, does. So if we're going to assume the truth of Scripture, we can't object to it. We can't dismiss it as a flawed interpretation of Genesis, for example, if we don't understand, even if we don't understand the reasoning behind it. Because this is God's interpretation. But in actual fact, there is good reason. Remember how life in the garden is paradigmatic of God's ideal plan for human beings. It's the way we're created to be. And that includes leadership among God's people. We see it all kinds of ways in Genesis 2. Paul points out that God, God did not create Adam and Eve simultaneously. He could have, but he didn't. He created Adam first, and then as we read, he created Eve to be the helper for him. 
Adam exercised his leadership by naming her. Furthermore, it was to Adam alone that God gave the command not to eat from the tree. And in Genesis 3, even after the fall, God still approached Adam first, even though Eve sinned first. He was given responsibility. He was the God-given leader of the couple, created first, and made the leader. This is the pattern that God established in Eden. And Paul is saying that this pattern is so fundamental to biblical manhood and womanhood that God wants it to be reflected in the leadership positions that he entrusts to people in his church. So when men have leadership in the church in terms of teaching and authority and women support them in this role, we see a reflection of God's purposes in creation. The pattern that God set up in the garden is maintained. So the reason that God's word gives us for women not teaching or having authority over men in a mixed congregational setting is not something that changes with the times. It's from the order of creation itself. Now the next verse is harder to understand. I don't think it's another reason for teaching, uh, for the teaching and leading role in, in church to be given to the men. I think that was established in verse 13. Verse 14 is more an illustration of how God's pattern, that intended order, can be overturned. Verse 14 says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Now, Paul's not saying here that all women are more gullible than men, or that they're less educated than men. Nor is he saying that all women are to be punished in some way for Eve's sin. Nor is he actually blaming the woman for the fall, or, is, or exonerating Adam. In other places, for example, in Romans 5, he puts the blame for the fall squarely on Adam, because as a leader, Adam has the one who's final responsibility. So what is he saying? He's saying, make statements about Adam and about Eve. He said, look, Adam is the leader, created first. He was not deceived. He knew the word of God. Eve was deceived and as a result became a transgressor, someone who had broken God's law. Well, incidentally, when we go back to Genesis 2 and realize that Adam wasn't deceived, it means he's actually deliberately done what is wrong. It means he's even more culpable, right? Not less, but that's not, um, that's not Paul's point here. Right? His point is that the, a woman was deceived, not Adam, and she says that herself in Genesis 3. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Right? She listened to the serpent instead of the word of God that had come to her through her husband. And God gave his word to the husband. He ought to have taught it. She ought to have listened to it. But she didn't. She was deceived. She was enticed by what she thought would be pleasurable, but really brought disaster. She became a transgressor. Now, what's the link between that and how many women relate in church. Well, it's back to the order of creation that God that that, 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 that that was just written about in that previous verse. God created men and women to rule creation under him. God gave man the leadership role in that, and that was exercised through passing on of God's word. And so you have God ruling the man and the woman through his word, the man exercising leadership role through teaching the word, and the woman helping him, and then creation as a whole under the rule of the man and the woman. But what happened in the fall? The pattern God gave was reversed. The serpent perverted, the serpent which is part of creation, perverted God's leadership, tempted Eve instead of going directly to Adam, deceived Eve, part of the creation. Eve in turn gave some of the forbidden fruit to her husband, who wasn't deceived, but instead of following God's pattern and obeying his word, turned from it to follow his wife and ate the fruit. Remember what God said to Adam? Because you listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the, 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 uh, of the tree which I commanded, you shall not eat, and therefore the curse has come. And so instead of the God, man, woman, creation pattern, whole thing is reversed. Man disobeyed God and instead followed his wife who followed the serpent. That's the nature of sin. Disobeying his word 
disregarding his pattern. And so Paul's telling us, look, the creation order, that is important for church life. And to violate it is to follow, it's, be, it's like following in the footsteps of Adam and Eve in the fall. The leadership of the church, just like the leadership of the family, was a role of the male. And so Paul does not allow the woman to be in authority over men. And the leadership was meant to be exercised primarily through the teaching of God's word. And so Paul does not allow the woman to teach God's word to the men. Now, God takes this seriously, as we've seen from this passage. This is not like an optional command that, you know, you take it or leave it. It's not a random thing. It's not advice for the times, but it's a principle that's rooted in creation itself. So we're not at liberty to ignore it, even if our culture doesn't like it, or even if it, you know, it's going to turn people off, it's going to make us unpopular. If God has said this, then we've got no option really but to pray that he would change our hearts so that we would gladly and cheerfully and honestly obey him from the heart. Because we love him and we trust him and we want to fulfill his plans. Now if Eve here is a picture for female sin, she's also a picture for female salvation. Come with me to verse 15. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Now, you notice there's a, the she there in the first half of the sentence that's still referring back to Eve from uh, uh, verse 13 and 14. Got 13, you call her Eve. 14, the woman. 15, is she. Right? But Eve doesn't just represent herself. And what is true about her is true for all women. She represents all women. And so she, so Paul seamlessly goes from she, in the singular, in the first half of verse 15, to they, the plural, in the second half of the verse. What does it mean then that she, Eve, or women, will be saved through childbearing? Now that's a difficult verse, isn't it? I can think of Four different ways this could be read. Two of which I'm sure are wrong. The other two could be right. Let me tell you first the two that I think are wrong. The first one is that women are saved by bearing children, and so there is another way of salvation other than by trusting in Jesus and his death on the cross for us. And that is by having kids. Now, we know this is wrong, don't we? Because it contradicts what we saw last week in the first half of the chapter, and it contradicts the teaching of the whole Bible as well. Our final salvation is not by what we do, but by God's kindness to us in Christ. It's by trusting in the Lord Jesus and his finished work on the cross to save us. It's by submitting to him as our Lord to lead us. So having children is not an alternative means of salvation. So we can quite easily put that one away. Secondly, some people have thought that this means that she will not die while giving birth. Okay? She will not die by, while giving birth. Because back in those days, maternal mortality was very high. It was a serious concern for people. So, if this was a promise, then that would be a really good promise, wouldn't it? But there are two problems with that. First of all, the word saved is consistently used in these letters to refer to salvation from sin and from hell, rather than from salvation from something like dying in childbirth. And secondly, there doesn't seem to be any connection between this and the rest of the verses if it's, if it, if it's about uh, maternal mortality. So, it doesn't seem to work. Of course, there's also the empirical observation we can make that even godly Christian women have died in childbirth. Although we should read from the text outwards rather than reading our experiences into it. But it, it's confirmatory. So I think we can put that one aside as well. A third option is that childbearing is a word that's representative of a, the, 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 the bigger idea of being a woman and embracing the feminine role. 
Oh, we just talked about a role that is reserved for men. And here, well, here's a role that is reserved for women. Right? Men can't do it. And mustn't do it. Here's a role that, that women are to embrace. Because they don't have to be like men to be really godly. You don't have to be like a man to be godly. What you really have to be is a woman. And what could be more feminine than mothering a child? That's a very high calling indeed. Now, of course, not all women are mothers. Some are not married and so should not be. Others suffer infertility and cannot have children. Paul's not saying if you're not a mother then you can't be saved. The point, I think, is that we shouldn't think that the male leadership role is more spiritual or more important and, and so women risk their salvation by not pursuing it. No, 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 no. Paul tells Timothy in the end of 1 Timothy 4 to devote himself to preaching and teaching and if he persists in this and watching his life and doctrine closely, he will save both himself and his hearers. Now, if this understanding of the verse is correct, then being a mother is another way of doing the same thing. Of course, you're ultimately saved by Christ and his death for you alone, death alone for you. But along the path between here and final salvation, the end of the age, well, for Timothy, he had to preach the word, exercise his God-given gifts, watch his life and doctrine closely, fight false teachers. For the Christian woman, that path involves being a mother. And so if this option is correct, then friends, Paul is saying the godly path for daughters of Eve is, is to be a woman. Whatever that means. Our culture may look down on this because the feminist movement says women try and be like men. As if the unique feminine roles are less important, but that's because our culture is sinful. Being a mom is not a second class ministry. It's creation obedience. It involves evangelism. Involves intensive discipleship of the children, all rolled into one. And it's a path of ministry that many Christian women are taking. And if you have the opportunity to do it, then do it. In faith. Trusting in Christ alone for your salvation. If you have the opportunity to do it, then do it. In love. Loving Jesus, loving your husband, loving your children. Do it in holiness. Keeping yourself pure because you're consecrated to God's service. And bearing children and nurturing them is very much part of God's service. Do it with self-control. Being decent and upright and respectable. And that will be your path in this world to the heavenly glory that you will receive by grace in the, through faith in the Lord Jesus. Embrace the role that God has given you. It's option three. Option four rides on a couple of things that I need to explain to you. First of all, in the original Greek, there is a the there in verse 15. She will be saved through the childbearing. Now, it's quite legitimate to trans tra translate it without, the, without translating the the. Okay? Our, tr our translators have nothing wrong by doing this, the way they've translated. But it's also okay to translate it, she will be saved through the childbearing. And remember the word she there refers, first of all, to Eve in the previous verse, before it refers to all women. Now, when God punished the serpent in Genesis 3, one of the things he said to them, it's going to come up on the screen now, one of the things she said to the, the, the serpent, Sharon, yep, thank you, is this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise or crush your head, and you shall bruise or crush his heel. So the offspring of the woman, someone who would come from Eve, would eventually come and fight the serpent, and defeat the serpent, and bruise or crush his head, and yet he himself would be wounded in the process. Now that was the hope for the woman in Genesis 3. One day, one of her offspring would do that. Now, in Paul says in verse 14, Eve sinned, she became a transgressor, someone who has broken the law, and yet in verse 15, she will be saved through the childbirth. 
Her salvation will come through the one who will fulfill this promise that God has made to her. Now, of course, we know the promise ultimately was fulfilled in Jesus. He's the true serpent crusher who defeated Satan by his death on the cross. And so Eve and all the women she represents are saved by him. Provided they continue in faith and love and holiness and self-control. And if they're believers, then they will show these things in their lives. So even though a woman was deceived, even though there was that whole thing of the fall, the, the, uh, the uh, reversal of the order of creation, all those things, never mind, there is still salvation through this serpent crusher, through the Lord Jesus. Now, both of those last two options seem reasonable to me. They both fit the context, both seem to be faithful to the rest of the scripture. I think either is possible. I'll leave you to decide which one you think is, is correct. If I was forced to choose one, then today I might take the last one, I think. Uh, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Lord comes and he says, ah, oh, it's the second one, it's the, the one before that. Okay? And, oh, yeah, okay. Maybe tomorrow I'll switch as well. We may not be sure which option to choose in verse 15. But the main thrust of the passage is pretty clear, isn't it? I think so. Women and men have different roles to play because we are different. The roles in church that are not open to women are teaching and having authority over men. That's perfectly clear here. And the reason for that is rooted in creation. Now, I don't want to leave it there, though, because this is not all the Bible has to say about the ministry of women. Right? So, we've gone, we looked at the whole, we went to the detail, and let's look back a little bit wider, right? so that we don't just look at this little bit. Because remember, Jesus affirmed women. Jesus affirmed their, their, their roles. Not only did he, now, he, he, he did appoint uh, men only to the authoritative positions of apostleship. But this doesn't mean that in any way he demeaned women or he nullified their contributions to his cause. We only have to think of examples of Mary and Martha and the Samaritan woman at the well and Mary Magdalene and, and the other witnesses to the empty tomb. Very important job. Jesus loved and affirmed and taught and healed and honored women. The fact that he appointed 12 male disciples does not contradict this because often he himself would go back to creation when he is dealing with issues thrown up by his opponents. And so in appointing male apostles and yet at the same time affirming and honoring women, he was upholding both the dignity of women and the order of creation, the leadership of men. Paul, like his master, affirmed the ministry of women. In Romans 16.3, Paul calls Priscilla and her husband Aquila fellow workers in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 4.3 and 4, he calls Euodia and Syntyche fellow workers who have labored side by side with him in the gospel, both women. In Romans 6.6, he says that Mary has worked hard among you. And in verse 12, Tryphena and Tryphosa are workers in the Lord. And Persis has worked hard in the Lord. All women. Other places he calls men his fellow workers as well. You see, he celebrates the fact that women and men are his partners in ministry. They work hard together for the gospel. But the fact that we work hard together doesn't mean we all do the same things. As we work with our own gifting and our own roles to which God has called us in his word, we work together for God's name and God's glory. So I don't want you to go away thinking that just because women aren't meant to be teaching the Bible to a mixed group or having authority over men, they've got no part in ministry. There are many, many areas of ministry that is right and good and appropriate for women to be involved in, including on a full-time basis. But teaching the Bible and having authority over men are two areas where this is not right. So, what have we learned today? Men are to pray. And we are to do so without anger or quarreling. Women are to dress decently and appropriately. As women who fear the Lord, adorn yourselves with good works. And all of us 
we are to minister appropriately in church. Men are to take the teaching and leading roles, not because they are better or more important or more valuable than women, but because we all want to glorify God by reflecting together his creation plans in our lives together. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are God, that you are our maker, and that you love us. And what you have given us is good. Please help us to uh, trust you in that. Uh, sometimes when the things we read in your word and we wonder doesn't seem to, to fit with what um, the world around us is, is thinking and how um, people around us and how we ourselves have been uh, brought up or trained to think. Uh, please help us to be humble before your word. Please help us to keep searching the scriptures. Um, help us to be willing uh, to correct ourselves um, if we have made mistakes in our understanding of your word. But help us also to be willing to work hard at applying what you have to say to us in our lives and in our church. We pray, Lord, that uh, Christ would indeed be Lord of his church and rule his church through his word. May we not censor it or turn aside from it, uh, but to hear what you have to say and respond properly. Help us, we pray, um, in our prayers, in our dress, uh, in our relationships, to love you and honor you, and to show holiness. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen.